Numbers 9 through, yeah, like halfway through 9 to 14. Okay. If you forgot to read it, it's too late. Now you have to pay attention to me. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you uh, for this beautiful day. Uh, it's a day you have made, so we can rejoice and be glad in it because you have made it, uh, you are in control of it, uh, and you are even now working all things together for good for us um, and have been all today, for today, and tonight as we sleep. You'll pray over us, and you'll pray for us for the next day and the next week and the next month. Uh, you're amazing. We love you, and we thank you for your watch care over us. I pray tonight that your spirit would take what is yours and teach it to us and change us from the inside out through your word. We thank you for all these things and for your promise to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Numbers, yep, yep. Okay, Numbers, um, we started Numbers last week, we covered 1 through 9, tonight we'll cover mm, halfway through 9 through 11, next week, no, 9 through 14, next week we'll cover, I think it's about 15 to 25, so... Might want to get ready to read. Uh, let's see. Numbers is the book of obedience. Obedience. And hopefully you're beginning in 1 through 9, you really see obedience. You, you see it all the way up to pretty much into chapter 10. You see obedience. And then if you had time to do the reading, you saw that um, some things begin to change in 11 through 14. So I want to tell you a story that we're, is going to set, set tonight up. I, I don't tell you this story um, to gossip or disparage. Um, I tell you this story to illustrate that no one is immune from the lesson of tonight. Um, there, I do not know this person, and this was not in this city, but there was a, a pastor, well-loved, and ministering away in a church. And one day, um, like a Monday, they came in the office, and his desk was empty. And whatever closets he had were empty, and he was gone. And so was the church secretary. His wife was still at home, didn't know what had happened. No one knew what had happened. So someone thought, you know, there, have, there has to be some, some way we could begin to piece this together. And so someone went, went to his desk, which is very neatly arranged, and there was a white pad of paper, blank, and someone thought, you know, I've seen this before, like in a detective show. And if you take the pencil and you rub on the white paper, you can begin to make out the impression that was written. And what, what came out was a pro and con. Pro and con. And he had made a list, pros and cons, for doing what he had done. 
and evidently decided, can't remember which one was pro and which one was con, but he had evidently decided this would be in his best interest to go off in that direction. Uh, somewhere, some way, somehow in this fellow's life, a tipping point came. A tipping point came where he had to decide what he was going to do and what voice, if you will, he was going to follow. That tipping point is nothing that any of us should emulate. But Israel tonight, if you read the chapters, hits a tipping point. And they have to decide what to do, where they're going to go, and their whole entire future is going to depend on whether they choose with God or whether they choose against God. Tonight is a story of a tipping point that Israel hit not long after they broke camp from a year at being at the base of Mount Sinai around the tabernacle. Obedience. Here's the big outline of the book of Numbers. First nine, nine and a half chapters, the first generation is ordered by covenant. Remember, God had made a covenant with them, and he said, you stand here, and you camp here, and you this, and you that. He laid them all out. It's preparation for victory. The saints are called by God to be soldiers in those first nine chapters. The second big section of Numbers is the first generation wanders in the desert, because the Lord takes them into the desert, and they don't do so well, and the Lord disciplines them. And remember, the book of Numbers, as the whole entire Pentateuch is likely written, while the second generation is standing across from the Jordan River, and their big question that we started answering in Genesis is, how did we get here? Genesis, remember the book of beginnings, and we had whatever happened to, and whatever happened to, and whatever happened to, and Exodus is the story of him redeeming his people out of Egypt. Leviticus, we learn about how do I approach this God, and how do I live with this God who's just now come to dwell with me. And in Numbers, he says, okay, here we are, and I want you to go get your inheritance. And they've got to decide whether they're going to go or not. So here's my cartoon version. Does that work okay with the light? Is that good? Can everybody see that? Remember, we've talked about this before. Here's Egypt. And the Lord told the Israelites, put blood on the, of the lamb, put the blood of the Passover lamb on your doorpost. Come through that. And by grace, through faith, under blood, you'll leave Egypt. He took them from Egypt. He took them, yes, that's the Red Sea, in case you needed some help with that. And this is the dry land that he made so they could walk across on the dry land, across the Red Sea. He took them out here into the wilderness to test them and to know it was in their heart. And he eventually took them to Mount Sinai, where he gave them a new covenant, which meant he had redeemed them 
But then he actually formally adopts them as his people, and they have fellowship as long as they're going to obey. And he says, he said way back here in Genesis, I'm going to give you this land. Remember we talked about this last week. I've got some land for you. I want you to go there. So he redeems them. He does miraculous things to get them here. He says, I've adopted you into my family. I'm your king. I'm your father. Here we go. They say, yay. Numbers one through nine. He says, all right, we're going to do everything decently and in order. So he orders them and he says, you're saints and now you're going to become soldiers and I'm going to line you up and we're going to march into the promised land and you're going to take it because I promised Abraham way back here that this is what we were going to do. Remember all this? Okay, so right now they're sort of right there. Because Moses is warning the second generation. What happened to the first generation? Because of tonight, because of the tipping point. They're going to die in the wilderness. So Moses is warning the second generation not to repeat the faithlessness of their fathers and mothers. That's why he's writing the book. God ordered us. God prepared us. God set it up. All we had to do was march in. And by the way, we had to trust God as we marched in. They didn't. So Moses warns the second generation, don't do what mom and dad did. You've got to live differently. And so he lays out the historical account of what happened to their mothers and fathers because likely they wouldn't remember it or if they were just 20, they would be 60 and so they would remember if they were old enough. But if they were young enough or born out there in the wilderness, they've never heard nor seen what happened to mom and dad and why mom and dad are wandering around in the desert and why I'm wandering around in the desert because they were. That's the big outline of the book of Numbers. And tonight, the tipping point will be so clear to you. There's some good applications that we'll get out of it as well. Kadesh Barnea is the tipping point. So they are, we'll, we'll let this good map take over. If Mount Sinai is right here, and it is, if Mount Sinai is right here, then God says, okay, let's go to Kadesh Barnea. And so they start heading in this direction. At Kadesh Barnea, interesting things begin to happen. Now, when you go to Israel, this is where they go. It looks like the moon. And when you're standing on it, it's, it's hotter than the sun. It, it's a desert. Okay, so they come up, right? They're coming up from the south. They're coming up from the south. And so this is the area of the Negev, which means the south. The south, the Negev. See how that works? The Negev, the south. Look at this. 
<laughs> Let's follow the Lord there. <laughs> but this is where he's taking them on the way to their whole entire promised land. If you get nothing else from tonight, here's the big idea. The greatest challenges God's people face in following him come from within. The greatest challenges God's people face in following him come from within. I'm going to do, we're going to go through these chapters twice. First, I'm going to fly over the top, 36,000 feet, whoosh, we're going to fly over. Then we're going to rewind and we're going to go through them again and look uh, sort of behind the curtain at what's going on. All right. The story of chapters 10 through 14. So 1 through 9, God, Moses, and Aaron have called and prepared the people to live on mission, to go claim their inheritance. Now what does God do? He takes them into the wilderness. Chapter 10, verse 33, they're going to head out. They march for three days, and they're heading up toward the north. And we're reminded that God leads them into, not around, the wilderness, just as he did with Jesus. Remember Luke 4 who took Jesus into the wilderness. Do you recall from Luke 4? The Holy Spirit. What? Some of you have asked yourselves from time to time in your life, why am I here? I've tried to honor God. I've tried to walk with God. I've tried to be faithful. And I feel like I'm in the wilderness. Maybe you are. Maybe God led you there for your good, not to destroy you, but for your good, just like he did with Jesus and just like he does with his people way back here, 1,500 years before Jesus. He's still leading his people into so that he can lead them through the wilderness. So God, Moses, and Aaron have called and prepared the people to live on mission to go claim their inheritance God sets them in their direction. He's going to take them through the wilderness, not around it. 9 to 10, if you recall, 9 through 10, they begin well, even very well. End of chapter 9. So they camped or traveled at the Lord's command, and they did whatever the Lord told them through Moses. Yes. Good job, Israelites. Remember, he teaches them through the cloud. Oh, my gosh, this is such an important lesson. Have you learned the lesson of the cloud? You know the lesson of the cloud? I'll tell you some other time. Such a good lesson. Oh, you want to know the lesson of the cloud? When, when did they move? There, you've just learned the lesson of the cloud. Follow God. Sometimes God sets down and he doesn't move. And do you know what you're tempted to do? I know what you're tempted to do. I've already confessed I'm a sinner. You know what I do. I want to run ahead. I know none of you are like that. You learn from my bad example and you don't do that. 
Sometimes God gets up and moves, and where are you? And where am I? I'm still in the tent. <laughs> hey, what just happened? Where did everybody go? Praying for a sensitivity and responsiveness to God's spirit is the lesson of the cloud. They got to see it. I wish I could see it sometimes. I'm kind of a visual person. But praying for that sensitivity and responsiveness to God's spirit. Because when God gets up, you know where you want to be? Up. When God's moving, you know where you want to be? Right behind him. When God stops, do you know where you want to be? Stopping. <laughs> and if he, right, what, do you, what does it force you, and I mean in that in a good way, what does it force you to do? If you're an Israelite, what is he training you to do? Pay attention and depend on me. Look to me. Watch me. If I move, you move. If I stop, you stop. You don't know when I'm going to move. I'm God. You're not. I may not move when you want me to move, and I may move when you don't want me to move. Watch me and follow me. Gosh, that's so anti-American. But he's training his people, follow me. And you don't know when I'm going to move and where I'm going to move and how I'm going to move, so you've got to watch me. Watch me. The lesson of the cloud. It says, there's this crazy little verse too. Um, in verse 21, the end of verse 21. But day or night, when the cloud lifted. That's crazy. You mean sometimes they had to get up in the middle of the night? That's what it looks like. Whoa. <laughs> they had to be sensitive to where God was and responsive to his movement. Be sensitive and be responsive to where God's going. Story of chapters 10 through 14. God, Moses, and Aaron have prepared the people. God leads them into the wilderness. They begin very well, walking obediently and in an orderly fashion behind God's leadership, represented by the pillar of cloud. Yay, Israel, good job. But things deteriorate quickly. We get to chapter 11. Now, uh, this, is, this is a little bit of conjecture, but not really very much. Chapter 10, verse 33. They marched for three days after leaving the mountain of the Lord with the Ark of the Lord's Covenant. Chapter 11, verse 1. Soon the people began to complain. How many days? Three. Three days. They've been, at, they've been at Sinai for a year. They're like, when do we go get our land? Come on, come on, come on. Three days. God says, come on, everybody up. Here we go. We're marching three days. After three days, it comes unzipped. <laughs> Chapter 11, they complain about their hardships. Soon the people began to complain about their hardship. And the Lord heard everything they said. Oh, 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 oh. What? Really? I wish that verse wasn't in there. The Lord's anger blazes against them, and he sends a fire to rage among them, and he destroyed some of the people in the outskirts of the camp. 
Then the people screamed to Moses for help, and when he prayed to the Lord, the fire stopped. After that, the area was known as Taborah, which means the place of burning, because fire from the Lord had burned them, burned among them there. For what? Complaining. Who hears our complaining? Do you recall in the New Testament it says we will have to give an account for every idle word spoken? I don't like that verse either. They complain about their hardships after three days. <laughs> three days. Chapter 11. They move from complaining about their hardships to complaining about their food. <laughs> they crave meat from Egypt. How did it start? The foreign rabble who were traveling with the Israelites began to crave the good things of Egypt. And the people of Israel also began to complain, which is why Paul says in the New Testament, bad company corrupts good morals. Who starts this thing? Them. But it infected the people of Israel. Oh, for some meat, they exclaimed. We remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. And we had all the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic we wanted, but now our appetites are gone. All we ever see is this manna. Who gave them the manna? All we ever see is the stuff God gave us. And are we happy with what God's given us? No, we're not. After how many days? Eh, three plus. <laughs> they crave meat from Egypt. So God and Moses are upset with uh, the people. Moses is to the point now where he's ready to die. So he's, uh, he's become stirred up over this whole thing. The Lord provides, doesn't he? He gives Moses 70 liters, and then he gives them lots and lots of quail. So he sends a wind to do that. Chapter 11, verse 33. But while they were gorging themselves on the meat, while it was still in their mouths... The anger of the Lord blazed against the people, and he struck them with a severe plague. So that place was called Kibroth Hata'ava, which means graves of gluttony, because there they buried the people who had craved meat from Egypt. From Kibroth Hata'ava, the Israelites traveled to Hatzeroth, where they stayed for some time. They're complaining about their hardships, they're craving meat from Egypt. Chapter 12, they're not done. <laughs> While they were at Hatzeroth, Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses because he'd married a Cushite woman. They said, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he spoken through us too? Guess what? The Lord's got really good ears. <laughs> but the Lord heard them. Parenthetical. Now Moses was very humble more humble than any other person on earth. So immediately, the Lord called to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. 
How'd you like to get that telephone call? <laughs> Moses, Aaron, Miriam. And Moses is probably going, what? Go out to the tabernacle, all three of you. Notice the exclamation mark. So the three of them went to the tabernacle. Then the Lord descended in the pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tabernacle. Aaron and Miriam, he called, and they stepped forward. This would not be good. If you're Moses, you're going, oh, phew, it's not me. Aaron and Miriam, he called. They stepped forward, and the Lord said to them, now listen to what I say. If there were prophets among you, I, the Lord, would reveal myself in visions. I would speak to them in dreams, but not with my servant Moses. Of all my house, he is the one I trust. I speak to him face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the Lord as he is. So why were you not afraid to criticize my servant Moses? The Lord was very angry with them. He wasn't just angry. He was very angry with them. And he departed. As the cloud moved from above the tabernacle, there stood Miriam, her skin as white as snow from leprosy. When Aaron saw what had happened to her, he cried out to Moses, Oh, my master, please don't punish us for this sin we have so foolishly committed. Don't let her be like a stillborn baby already decayed at birth. So Moses said, You made your bed, lie in it. Oh, no, that's not what he says. Remember, Moses is the most humble man on the face of the earth. So Moses cried out to the Lord, Oh God, I beg you, please heal her. The Lord said to Moses, She's unclean for seven days. So they keep her out there and they can't travel again until she's clean and can come back in the camp. What's happened here? They use Moses' marriage to a Cushite to say he's disqualified himself somehow, but we, Aaron and Miriam, Lord, are here to lead your people for you. They're trying to usurp Moses' leadership. And here's their smokescreen. That woman he married, it's just bogus. And the Lord sees straight through it. He calls them to account because they are rebelling against Moses' leadership. As a result, Miriam is made leprous for seven days. They start off great. They start complaining about their hardships. They start craving meat from Egypt. They rebel against Moses' leadership. Chapter 13. The Lord now said to Moses, send out men to explore the land of Canaan. So Moses and the Lord send 12 spies into the promised land. Huh. Interesting. If you recall, Deuteronomy chapter 1. So if you flip, flip a few pages here. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Verse, we'll start in 21. Chapter 1, verse 21. Moses is speaking. Look, 
God has placed the land in front of you. Go and occupy it as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, ancestors has promised you. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. But you all came to me and said, first, let's send out scouts to explore the land for us. They will advise us on the best route to take and which towns we should enter. This seemed like a good idea to me, so I chose 12 scouts, one from each of your tribes. Who else has approved the people's request? The Lord. Sometimes the worst thing God can do is answer your prayer. Are the spies going to walk by sight or by faith? They want to start off by sight. Has God already told them, I have a great land for you? Has he already told them what the boundaries of it are? Has he already told them what enemies they're going to fight and face there? He's told them everything about it. What do the people, what are the people prepared to do? We don't believe him. We want to go see for ourselves. That's walking by sight, not walking by faith. So God says, Burger King, have it your way. You want to go see? Go see. He sends them. He talks to Moses, evidently. Moses, on behalf of the Lord, sends these spies off into the promised land. Ten sea giants and walled cities, only two say go. This will be on the final. Ten said no, two said go. All right, that'll be on the final for sure. So chapter 13, how did their request work out in terms of them walking in faith? Really didn't work out very well. What was the result? Not good. They come back and the people, the ten, are stirring up the whole population. Caleb and Joshua are trying to stop this thing. They're going, the Lord has promised it to us. We can take it. We can take it. What do they want to do to him? Stone him. Kill him. Shut him up. Take him out. They finally, Moses goes, and the Lord says, okay, this is what's going to happen. Here's the consequence. I'll forgive, but here's the consequence. You were there in the land 40 days, you get 40 years in the desert. Not one of you above the age of 20 in the first generation will see the land. Not one of you. You were afraid that your children would die in the wilderness. Here's how it's going to work. You're going to die in the wilderness, but your children are going to get into the land. The people are so upset, what do they do? Oh, they weep and they cry and they get up the next morning in chapter 14. They weep and they cry all night and they say, if only we had died in Egypt or even in the wilderness. The Lord goes, I I can help you with that. (laughs) Moses intercedes, et cetera, et cetera. Finally, he gives them the, uh, the verdict. Verse 39 of chapter 14, when, the Mo- when Moses reported the Lord's words to all the Israelites, the people were filled with grief 
Then they got up early the next morning and went to the top of the range of hills. Let's go, they said. We realize that we have sinned, but now we're ready to enter the land the Lord has promised us. Gosh. I know that sounds like me. Does that sound like you? But Moses said, why are you now disobeying the Lord's orders to return to the wilderness? It won't work. Do not go up into the land now. You will only be crushed by your enemies because the Lord is not with you. When you face the Amalekites and Canaanites in battle, you will be slaughtered. The Lord will abandon you because you have abandoned the Lord. But the people defiantly pushed ahead toward the hill country, even though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's Covenant left the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in those hills came down and attacked them and chased them back as far as Hormah. The next morning, they've already said, we're not going. The next morning they say, we've changed our mind. But now they're resistant. God says, don't go. They say, but we are going to go. They refuse to trust God and obey his word. In other words, right now it would be better for them to be in God's will and be in the wilderness than to go against God's will and go try to take this land. But they don't see that or agree with that. So they refuse to trust God and obey his words. They rebel. We won't go. So God's discipline falls. 40 years for 40 days. What's the result? The other side of the tipping point. The first generation is set aside because of their faithlessness and disobedience. None of the first generation will possess God's promised inheritance except Joshua and Caleb. The first generation won't receive the full measure of God's blessing. They lose out on his best for them in their generation. The crazy question is, What happened? What happened? Let me remind you the bottom line for tonight. The greatest challenges God's people face in following him come from within. I want to wheel an x-ray over the Israelites' hearts. We've just flown over this thing at 36,000 feet. Now we're going to come in lower. And we're going to take a look at what's going on in their hearts. And you're immediately going to see what's happening. Faithlessness infected their hearts. Faithlessness. First, the first x-ray shows they had discontented hearts. Their complaint were their hardships and their circumstances. What's going on in their hearts? This is the second time of complaining after three days. They had a weak, fair-weather faith. They're complaining, therefore questioning God, revealed ungrateful, unsurrendered hearts. Remember what God tells Job 
Your complaining suggests you could do better. That's not the case, Job. Remember that lesson from Job? Remember I told you you can't forget anything in class because it could all wind up on the final? I know, Job was a long time ago, but there's common themes that run throughout the scriptures. They're complaining, therefore questioning God revealed ungrateful, unsurrendered hearts. Question for me. Question for you. In light of your current circumstances, what are you complaining, perhaps only to yourself, about? What are you focusing on? Your circumstances or God's faithfulness and generosity? Are you finding fault with God's leadership? Maybe like Job, you should be asking, what can I get out of this rather than how can I get out of this? Does your heart lack contentment tonight? Israel, after only three days, things started to get a little hard. It was revealed that they had discontented hearts, hearts that did not have contentment. And so they complained. Well, faithlessness continued to work in their hearts, and that gave them a divided heart. So that's the second half of chapter 11. Their complaint We're tired of manna, we want meat. Their hearts, they were double-minded. Remember when they were in Egypt? They couldn't wait to get out. Now that they're out, what do they want? They want to go back. They took God's daily provision for granted. Worse, they had unsatisfied appetites for Egypt's food. They thought, not thy will, but my will be done. So the problem with Israel wasn't the manna. The problem was their appetite. Their lack of contentment. Discontented heart. Their divided heart. Another question for you. And for me, what's your attitude toward God's manna? Do you spend more of your time with substitutes or with the real thing, the Word of God? How would you rate your level of gratefulness for God's everyday provision from one to five, five being the highest? Have you thanked Him for that recently? Do you have an unsatisfied appetite and desire for the meat the world offers? According to James in the New Testament, is such a one who wants to be a friend of the world also a friend of God? The answer to that question is no. 
Israel had a discontented heart. They had a divided heart because of their faithlessness. They also had prideful hearts. Their complaint, is Moses God's only leader here? What about us? Their hearts are filled with envy and or selfish ambition. Their desire is to lead rather than to serve. And do you know the worst part of this one? This comes from within the people of God. Faithlessness infected their hearts and gave them prideful hearts. Are you critical of one or some of your spiritual leaders? Have you gone to them privately? According to Matthew 18, or do you shop it around for agreement in public? You know, I've asked Bill for an answer to a question, and he didn't give a, uh, he gave me kind of a, probably a church answer. He didn't really answer my question. Anybody else had that happen? Have you ever gone up to the information desk and asked Bill something? He kind of, he's pretty evasive. I don't trust him, do you? Oh, you think I'm making these things up? And then people shop it around. What are they looking for? I found the same thing. Guess who sees? Guess who hears? Are you critical of one or some of your spiritual leaders. Perhaps you've said to yourself, you know what, I could do that better. I don't agree with our this or the way they that. Are you discontent with your current role in God's service? Do you go to God with that first? If you were Aaron or Miriam, where should you have gone? Lord, I don't understand. Would you give me contentment in my role? But instead, they saw what they thought they wanted and they were going to take it. Will you serve God 100% according to his appointment and will rather than your own? Will you give God one? 100% wherever he has you serving right now and not look to the left or to the right for something else or something quote unquote better will you do that you know who did do that A little guy named Joshua when we first meet him he's hanging around the tent right tent of meeting and then what happens well, he's up on the mountain with Moses and then what happens? He's leading the battle against the Amalekites. And then what happens? He's the man. <laughs> what did he do? He just did whatever God put in front of him, and he did it 100%. And he didn't look to the left or to the right or say, I sure wish I. He just did what God put in front of him 
100%. And he left everything else into God's hands. Faithlessness infected these Israelites' hearts. They had discontented hearts. They were unhappy with God's leadership and or his ways to the point that they're going to find someone to take them back to Egypt. Right? We are so unhappy with you, Lord, with the way you're leading us right now. We're going to find the best person we can and they're going to take us back to Egypt. And what does God offer Moses? Moses, let me start over with you. I'm going to wipe all these people out and start over with you. And you know what Moses says? It's not going to work any better. (laughs) They had discontented hearts. They're unhappy with God's leadership and or his ways. They had divided hearts. They're unhappy with God's diet and provision. They had prideful hearts. They're unhappy with God's current role for them. Not only that, but their infected hearts dulled their spiritual eyesight. So not only does faithlessness impact your heart, it impacts your eyes. So their faithless hearts dulled their sight. In chapter 13, they second-guessed God. They learned nothing new in 40 days. He had told them everything. Their enemies were known. The land was theirs. God promised to and did lead them to that place. But their dulled eyesight revealed their yet unspoken doubt in God's word and God's character. Their faithless hearts dulled their sight and made them second-guess God. They lost perspective. Ten only saw enemies who appeared larger than life. Walled cities that couldn't be overthrown. And personal weaknesses that loomed larger than God. And that dulled eyesight caused them to focus on obstacles and problems rather than focusing on God. They second-guessed God. They lost perspective. They followed their own counsel rather than God's will. Going back to Egypt seemed to be their only hope. Returning to a place of perceived security. And now unbelief has turned into outright rebellion. Their dulled eyesight caused their discouragement to turn into fear, and they took matters into their own hands. And so God disciplined them. Moses interceded for the people. God forgave his people at Moses' request. But although God has forgiven them, he still disciplines his people. And their dulled eyesight eventually brought God's corrective discipline upon them. Now, 
their faithless hearts dulled their sight, which by the end of chapter 14 revealed even more self-reliance. They'd made up their minds concerning what they were going to do. They'd go against God's revealed word if needed. They even believed this would please God. And they believed they could accomplish God's work in their own strength. That's why they didn't care if Moses or the ark went with them. Dulled eyesight tricked them into putting more trust in the power of their flesh than in the power of God. Some questions on faithlessness. And it might have a synonym sort of of self-reliance. How's your spiritual eyesight? Do you second-guess God and or his choices? Do you focus more on obstacles and problems or God? Does discouragement usually turn to fear, which makes you take matters into your own hands? Do you have spiritual cataracts that trick you into putting more confidence in your ability than in God's? The heart of the matter, then, is your heart may be flirting with faithlessness. In reality, your heart may be discontented, divided, or even struggling with pride. So how do we become Joshua's and Caleb's and strike back at faithlessness? First, Acknowledge to God that your heart is infected and in need of His grace daily. How long has it been since you've done that? Daddy, I don't even want to follow you right now. I don't want to love my neighbor as myself right now. But I want to want to Would you make me want to? Can you be that honest with God? Is he going to break? Is he going to be surprised? I don't know, crazy. (laughs) What if he knows everything? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Kind of says he does. (laughs) He hears stuff, he sees stuff, he knows my heart. (laughs) What if he kind of already knows this already? (laughs) And you think, you know what, he doesn't see. (laughs) He can't see in here. He doesn't know. What if he does? Crazy thought. Why not just out with it? Daddy, I don't want to love my neighbor. You know what my neighbor's done to me. I don't want to love my neighbor as myself. But your word says that's what I am to do. And I want to get to that place. And so I need you to do a good work in me to just get me to want to. Because I don't want to right now. You think God goes, <laughs> what did Bill just say? Oh my gosh, he caught me by surprise. I never thought he was going to say that. I don't think so. I think he says, I can help. Thanks for acknowledging your need. Your need is even greater than you can possibly imagine. <laughs> true, Lord, true. You may need to settle 
or resettle for issues tonight to be a Joshua or a Caleb? First, what's going to be the authority of your life? And I know the Sunday school answer. It's written right up here. Take God at his word. And you know that Sunday school answer too. What's that going to look like tomorrow? Tuesday or Thursday or Friday? Joshua and Caleb never turned to the left or to the right from trusting God and his word. They took God at his word. He said that land is yours. Joshua and Caleb believed it. Even when they walked in the middle of it and they saw everything those other ten saw, they came back and said, if God is pleased with us, we can take this. Not because of us, but because that's what God has promised us. They believed, even in the face of all that stuff. What's the authority going to be for your life? Settle the issue of trust. Look up to your father first in faith, more than focusing on the facts and circumstances you see. A lot of people like to talk about um, you know, problems and opportunities, and that problems are really just opportunities, sort of in hiding. That's true here. You have a problem in front of you. There's also an opportunity for God to do something. He sometimes specializes in insoluble problems. Do you, do you know this? I mean, even Moses, right? Even Moses has to learn this again. Chapter 11, verse 21, they want, says they're whining about wanting meat and leaving Egypt. And Moses responds to the Lord, there are 600,000 foot soldiers here with me. And yet you say, he's saying to God, yet you say, I will give them meat for a whole month. Even if we butchered all our flocks and herds, would that satisfy them? Even if we caught all the fish in the sea, would that be enough? Highlight verse 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, has my arm lost its power? Now you will see whether or not my word comes true. Some of your translation, translations say, is anything too hard for the Lord? Sometimes we begin to believe that, don't we? We begin to believe this is too hard for the Lord to solve. Trust in your Father first, in faith more than focusing on the facts and circumstances you see. I didn't say, close your eyes and be Pollyanna. La, 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 these facts and circumstances, they don't, they don't exist. No, they exist. They're real, and they may be pressing in on you. Got it. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I don't know how he will rescue you or when. And you'll come to me next week and say, he didn't get me out of my jam. Sorry, I'm not God. I, okay, you got to continue to trust him. I don't, know his, I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know what he's planning for you, except for this. It's for your good. 
Do I know how? Nope. <laughs> but he says in his word, all things work together for good for those who love me and are called according to my purpose. That's you. Therefore, the only thing I can be assured of, even in things when things aren't good that are happening to you, they are used for good by God in your life. The next week, I don't know. The next month, I don't know. The next year, I don't know. <laughs> but he said, all things will work together for good. And you must decide, Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Just some great scriptures for you to keep in your brain about the character and how, how much God feels about his word, how strongly he feels about it. Trust. Third, perspective. Remember that God's lead, God leads us through hardships, not around them, for our good. Through hardships. Sometimes we think I've trusted Christ and therefore he should carry me to heaven on a bed of roses. Oh, with the sounds of angelic choirs. I don't know any saints like that. <laughs> Remember that God leads us through hardships. By the way, Luke 4, if you didn't lead his son around the wilderness, guess what? He's not going to lead you around the wilderness either. <clears throat> Confidence. I love what Warren Wiersbe says. God's path will never lead you where God's grace cannot sustain you. God's path will never lead you where God's grace cannot sustain you. How can you be a Joshua or a Caleb? Acknowledge to God that your heart is infected and you're in need of his grace daily. And settle or resettle four issues tonight. What's going to be the authority of your life? Who are you going to trust most? What set of glasses are you going to use for your perspective and your confidence in God? I love the three Hebrew youth who are thrown into the fire. And they're asked, will your, you know, basically, will your God rescue you? He may, but even if he doesn't, our feet are set, our course is determined, and we will go this way. That's confidence in God. He may deliver us. You know what? He may not. That's okay. We're moving forward with him. We're going to take our chances with him. The greatest challenges God's people face in following him come from within. Most of us think they come from without. The truth of tonight's lesson, the tipping point, is they come from within, from our own infected hearts, infected with faithlessness. 
all of us, myself included. For next week, read Numbers 15 through 25, please. Whoops. 15 to 25. It's in your notes. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you uh, again uh, for uh, this uh, loving uh, exhortation, this stern reminder of the fact that you want faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please you, and we want to be men and women who please you. And therefore, we need to be men and women who walk in faith. Would you make us sensitive and responsive to your Spirit's leading? We confess our faith is small. Sometimes I think mine is half the size of a mustard seed. But thank you that even that is enough. We believe. Help us with our unbelief this week, please. We love you. We thank you for walking next to us. Thank you for never abandoning us, but always walking with us and going before us. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.